Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing the distant starlight problem for young earth creationism. Many consider young earth creationism to be a joke, and of course, they aren't wrong, but pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's easy to underestimate one's opponent when they're defending a view that's radically at odds with the scientific consensus, especially when their motivation for rejecting the numerous independent lines of evidence that inform the consensus is entirely religious. But debunking pseudoscientific views is not always easy. You need to be familiar with the specific beliefs and arguments of the group in question. Being right isn't enough. Even experts in their fields can get blindsided in a debate if they've never read Young Earth arguments. You need to familiarize yourself with a group's particular brand of pseudoscience to counter it effectively. Being right is not enough. This episode isn't about evolution or the worldwide flood. This is just about our ancient Earth and our even more ancient universe. Scientists line up overwhelmingly on one side of this issue. It would have to be an enormous conspiracy going on between scientists of all different disciplines in all different countries to have such a consensus. That doesn't move you? No, not at all, because from a biblical perspective, I understand why the majority would not agree with the truth. Man is a sinner. Man is in rebellion against his creator. Well, according to the atheistic, God-hating scientists who have somehow infiltrated and gained control of every major institution of science in the world, the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, and our universe is about 13.8 billion years old. According to those who are not suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, both are about 6,000 years old. Even though 4 out of 10 Americans believe that the entire universe is less than 10,000 years old, believing so is not essential to the Christian faith. Strictly speaking, the 2019 Gallup poll I'm referring to found that 40% of Americans believe that humans were created in their current form less than 10,000 years ago. I'm assuming everyone who believes that is also a young earther. But as we all know, you don't have to be a young earth creationist to be a Christian. A young earth view is not forced upon Christian believers. You do have to be a young earth creationist, however, if you want to take the Bible literally. Take it from the arch-young earther himself, Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. Now, people say to me, where do you get the 6,000 from? Because you don't open up the Bible and it says the earth is 6,000 years old. You're right, the Bible doesn't give a date for creation. But the Bible does give us a very specific history where we can actually calculate the age of the universe. The Bible tells us God made everything in six days. And on day six, he made Adam. And then we learn, as we read in the genealogies there, like in Genesis 5, we learn that uh, Adam had a son, Seth, at 130, and then Seth fathered Enosh at 105, and Enosh fathered Kenan at 90, and Kenan fathered, I don't know how to pronounce it, Mahalalel or whatever it is, at 70, and then he fathered Jared at 65, and Jared fathered Enoch at 162, and Enoch fathered Methuselah at 65, Methuselah fathered Lamech at 107, Lamech fathered Noah at 190, 82, and so it goes on, and you've got those very specific genealogies, and you can add up all the dates. And when you do, 
and you get to Noah, the flood, and then you get to Abraham, and from Abraham to Christ, and then from uh, the, the babe in a manger that time to today adds up to about 6,000 years. So that's where we get the age of the earth from, okay? The Bible gives us a very specific history. So if those days are six ordinary days, and that history is true, then the age of the earth and the universe, starting from the Bible, is 6,000 years. The universe is really, really not 6,000 years old. There are dozens of lines of independent evidence that disconfirm a young earth hypothesis. You might as well believe the earth is flat. In fact, some young earth creationists do. And again, many Christians accept the scientific consensus. According to William Lane Craig, young earth creationists are, quote, a very tiny minority of Christians. There is a very tiny minority of Christians today who believe that the world was created some 10 to 20,000 years ago. But Dr. Craig is either lying or mistaken, which is something I often find myself saying. I don't know of any Christian parent who says to um, his child, if you are gay, then you're going to burn in hell. That's, I think, a cruel caricature. Uh, I don't know of any Christian parent who says such a thing. It's not a very tiny minority of Christians. Remember, earlier I said 40% of Americans, according to a 2019 Gallup poll. Not 40% of Christians hold those beliefs. At any rate, 40% doesn't qualify as a very tiny minority. We're talking about 130 million people in the U.S., where there are 240 million Christians total. If most of the young earth creationists polled are Christians, which would be a safe assumption, considering the combined number of Muslims and Jews in the U.S. doesn't even reach 10 million, and presumably not all of them are young earth creationists, then that means that more than 50% of Christians in the United States, in other words, the majority of Christians, are young earth creationists. <clears throat> the majority of Christians in the United States are young earth creationists. I want to attack religion at its best. I think we should focus on the smartest things our opponents say, not the silliest. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that when I do so, I'm attacking a very tiny minority of Christians. So even though this will inevitably be seen as going after low-hanging fruit, I'm addressing the beliefs of more than half of my country's Christians, which I wouldn't be able to say were I to spend the episode attacking the more sophisticated forms of Christianity. creationists into two major camps. Both camps believe that the earth is young in reality, but one claims that the earth also appears young. In other words, the evidence is on the side of the young earth. The other camp accepts the scientific consensus that the earth appears ancient, but maintains that it's young in reality. To adopt the first position, the position that the earth appears young, is to reject the scientific consensus. To adopt the view that the earth appears old, is to accept the scientific consensus to a degree. We agree that the evidence is supportive of an old earth. Maybe all of it. If you're a young earth creationist who accepts that the world at least appears old, then I don't need to waste my time presenting the evidence that the earth is ancient. Instead, we can skip that and jump straight into your religious epistemology, the very steep price of adopting an appearance of age strategy, and questions as to why God would have created a young earth with the appearance of age. Why not just create a young earth with the appearance of youth? 
But for those young Earthers who sincerely believe that the evidence is mostly or all supportive of a 6,000-year-old universe, for example, my 16-year-old self, we have lots to talk about first. The Bible does give us some reason to think that the universe was created 6,000 years ago. Remember, that's the only reason young Earth creationists believe in a young Earth cosmology to begin with, for the Bible tells them so. It's not the best explanation of the data. It's not the most straightforward interpretation of the evidence. No scientist would ever be independently led to this conclusion. A desire to stay true to the Bible is the only reason anyone would possibly come to think that the universe is 6,000 years old. Think about the fact that no one who isn't religious thinks that the earth is young. There's widespread disagreement among atheists with regards to morality, consciousness, the details of evolution, free will, and a million other issues. Many Christians and atheists find common ground on those issues. Some Christians are Darwinists. Some atheists believe in libertarian free will and substance dualism. I have more in common on the issue of consciousness with Eugen Nagasawa, a theist, than I do with Dan Dennett, an atheist. But no one is a young earther who isn't also a Christian. No one. Nobody who isn't religious is convinced by young earth arguments. What does that tell you? That scientists are all sinners, which is Ken Ham's explanation? That doesn't explain why atheists and Christians are able to find common ground on a wide range of subjects and successfully persuade each other on all sorts of issues, but not on the young earth. There's no explicit contradiction between a young universe and atheism. That could have just happened to be the age of the universe. Many Christians in the U.S. agree that the earth is ancient, even though they're in the minority, but for some reason there are zero atheists who think the earth is 6,000 years old. For one piece of evidence, supportive of a universe older than 6,000 years, go outside at night and look up. You can see stars that are millions and millions of light years away. A light year is a measure of distance, how far light travels in one year. If a star was one light year away, it would take one year for a photon to travel from the star to your eyeballs. If it's true that everything in the universe is a few thousand years old, we should only be able to see objects a few thousand light years away. We shouldn't be able to look up at night and see stars that are millions of light years away. On a young Earth creationist model, there simply hasn't been enough time for light to travel from there to here. The closest star, Proxima Centauri, is 4.24 light years away. So we'd see that one, we'd see a few others, but we wouldn't see the sky full of stars that we observe from our perch here on Earth if those photons only had 6,000 years to make their journey. Poor Adam and Eve wouldn't hardly see anything in the night sky except the moon and neither would any of the early astronomers and astrologers who have been making complex maps of the stars for thousands of years. No one disputes that many of the stars we've observed through our telescopes are millions and even billions of light years away. So how do young Earth creationists respond to this outright falsification of their view? In their literature, they call this the distant starlight problem. The most popular solution, the one I've come across the most, is what young earther and astrophysicist Jason Lyle calls the light in transit model. Quote, It has been suggested that God supernaturally created the beams of light themselves. That is, the light beam, from every star to earth, 
is created in transit at the same time the stars are created. This light and route model is often presented in the context of mature creation, the idea that God created the universe fully functional from the start, and that the universe required no time or process to become what God wanted it to be. End quote. Even though this would seem to be the most common answer to the distant starlight problem, Dr. Lyle does not endorse it. And yes, he has a real PhD in astrophysics from a real university, University of Colorado Boulder. For one, those who endorse the light and transit view are conceding that the universe does in fact appear old. They're conceding that the scientific evidence is on our side. So why not just concede that the scientific consensus is correct since you've already conceded that the scientific consensus is correct? Of course, the answer is that the Bible tells them so. Not that this is the most plausible interpretation of the evidence we have. In fact, another reason Dr. Lyle doesn't like this light and transit model is that it seems to be in conflict with the Bible. Quote, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years. Genesis 1.14 Dr. Lyle and other creationists think this verse indicates that God made the lights in the sky to mark the passage of time and to give light upon the earth. God intended stars to mark the passage of time so he wouldn't create light already in transit. A clock that doesn't give you an accurate measure of time would no longer be a clock, which, according to Genesis 1.14, is what stars are for, among other things. So the common light in transit answer is arguably unbiblical, which is a problem for those who are determined to take the Bible literally. In addition to the fact that the light in transit response concedes the scientific consensus, which sort of defeats the purpose of young earth creationism, and that it's arguably in conflict with the Bible, this particular strategy for answering the distant starlight problem has other troubling implications. To quote Dr. Lyle, The light in transit model would mean that all events, beyond about 6,000 light years, have never happened. They would merely be a sequence of images in a beam of light created by God. These images would not correspond to any real event. But if God is willing to make movies of fictional events at distances beyond 6,000 light years, then why would we arbitrarily assume that he would not also make fictional movies nearby? Is the tree outside my window real? Or is it merely a picture embedded in light beams created by God? The light and root model requires that events we observe beyond about 6,000 light years, which covers the overwhelming majority of the universe, are fictional. And thus our senses are not reliable. If we cannot believe our eyes for 99.9999% of the universe, then why should we trust them for the other 0.0001? So light and root models lead to the inescapable conclusion that our senses are not generally reliable, in which case it doesn't make sense to even attempt to understand the universe. End quote. I would add that this strategy for solving the distant starlight problem can be applied to any problem. All radioisotope dating methods assume that the decay rate of an atomic nucleus is constant, that it always has been what it is today. This is based on the fact that subatomic particles obey the laws of physics, which are constant. As for the Grand Canyon with all its sedimentary layers, we're assuming that erosion and other geological processes happen at the same gradual rate that we observe today. But why invoke the flood? Maybe the Grand Canyon was created with all those layers of rocks and fossils. Maybe those nuclei were created part decayed, just like the distant starlight was created en route. To those who endorse the light and transit model, 
maybe you're right. It's totally unfalsifiable, as are all radically skeptical scenarios. So I can't say it's untrue with certainty, but accepting it has troubling implications. In particular, about the reliability of the data of experience and the uniformity of nature. The reason adopting a light and transit solution would jeopardize something as basic and essential as the uniformity of nature is because it's an appearance-of-age strategy. Any creationist solution that involves a claim that something was created with the appearance of age is a threat to our ability to rationally understand nature based on what we observe. For one, there's no principled way to employ this appearance-of-age strategy. Second, any creationist who adopts an appearance-of-age strategy has admitted that God is constantly tricking us. We can't use our rational faculties to understand nature. God has created evidence for events that never occurred. He's made nature to appear one way when it's really another way. And I have to ask, why is God trying so hard to fool us? What's the point of creating something with the appearance of age? Why not just make a universe that appears 6,000 years old? So one reason the uniformity of nature is in jeopardy is because there's an intervening God who's creating loads of misleading evidence for some reason. Furthermore, anyone who invokes the appearance of age has forfeited the ability to look to present data to understand the past. And this is the crucial takeaway. Any appearance of age strategy, for anything in nature, is necessarily a rejection of inductive reasoning. Induction goes out the window as soon as the appearance of age is introduced. We can no longer extrapolate into the past from the way things are now. I don't think many creationists who employ a light and transit strategy realize how big of a deal it is to say that we can't reverse engineer what's happened in the past based on what we see today. If God created most of the stars partway through their life cycle, with their light and root, that means we can't extrapolate away from the present based on what we observe. There's no reason to think the present is any indication of the past or future. Moreover, if God created starlight in route, that means the vast majority of what we can see with our eyes never actually happened. It's like God is Descartes' evil demon, presenting an outside reality to our minds that's completely misleading. If you endorse a light-in-transit solution, you've conceded that our senses are generally unreliable. Again, I don't think many creationists who employ this solution realize how big of a deal that is. The smarter ones do everything they can to avoid invoking the appearance of age, because they understand that they're forfeiting their ability to rationally comprehend the universe, for more than one reason. The light and transit strategy is a radically skeptical solution, so it can be used to solve any problem, but that itself is a problem. We come to understand the universe by postulating laws and theories to explain phenomena, not by giving up the idea that we can trust basic aspects of our minds. There's no reason to even attempt to understand the universe if we can't. If we can't trust our sense data in the vast majority of cases, then why would we trust them for the tiny bit that's left over? The idea that our senses are at least generally unreliable is unavoidable if one accepts a light and transit model so there's no reason to attempt to understand anything at all. Moreover, if current data are no indication of future data, or past data, then there's no reason to try to understand anything at all. Assuming the uniformity of nature has been an essential part of the sciences, as well as everyday life, as long as they've existed, there is no scientific progress or ability to understand the world around us without the uniformity of nature. Throwing it out would mean throwing out inductive inference, our ability to predict the future based on the past and present. 
So just to be perfectly clear, this particular strategy on the part of creationists is a rejection of the uniformity of nature and the idea that we can trust our senses, which would invalidate everything we know from science. And that would be the least of our concerns. But maybe you're a young earther who says, look, I don't want to give up the uniformity of nature. In fact, I think God upholds the uniformity of nature. I just think that God created things more or less in their present form a few thousand years ago, like the Bible teaches, and from that point on, nature has been uniform. God set the laws of nature and kicked things off at that point. So we can still have inductive inference, we can still do science and trust our senses, and so forth. Well, the problem is that you still couldn't trust your senses, for the reason that Dr. Lyle explained. If you endorse a light and transit model, you've already conceded that your senses are not generally reliable. And this response still doesn't really get you inductive inference. The problem is that we're still rejecting the uniformity of nature, and from a scientific perspective, doing so arbitrarily. Let me try to explain why this doesn't work a little more concretely. Say that I, like many young earthers, accepted this appearance-of-age strategy. I agree that not only starlight, but the Grand Canyon and those decaying isotopes were all created in their present form, and I think it was all created six years ago. Not six thousand, six. You could cite all the stars we see in the sky and the speed of light, but I could simply reply as young earthers do. They were created in their present form. Grand Canyon and decaying isotopes? Present form. But there are trees older than six years, created in their present form. A newspaper from 1995, printed with the wrong date on it, just like a photon in transit, or a decaying nucleus, is essentially printed with the wrong date on it. But I have memories that go back farther than six years. Sure, so do I. You were created, six years ago, with those memories. All you have are memories of the past. And I say those memories were created six years ago, along with everything else. The stars we can see that are millions of light years away were created six years ago, with their light and root. The Grand Canyon was created six years ago with all its sedimentary layers and all its apparent geological history. And isotopes were created mid-decay. If I'm not allowed to object to your creation story, you can't object to mine. If you endorse this light and transit strategy, there's nothing you can say to someone who believes the universe is six years old. Everything you say can be thrown right back at you to justify an even younger Earth. A 6,000-year-old Earth? Why not a six-minute-old Earth? So if you say there's proof that the universe is older than six years, then you must also concede that there's proof that the Earth is older than 6,000 years. There is indisputable evidence of age in our universe. The only way to wriggle out of some of this evidence is to make the move I just made. Claim that the universe was created with the appearance of age. If the evidence of the universe being older than six years counts, then so does the evidence of the universe being older than 6,000 years. You can't throw away one without throwing away the other. Alternatively, if you wanted to say that God sped up the speed of light, or otherwise changed laws of nature, rather than created light en route, it really makes no practical difference regarding the uniformity of nature. We could rephrase the argument to accommodate that view as well. It doesn't matter how the appearance of age came about, be it through God changing laws of nature temporarily, or some other means.
Creationists have spent a lot of energy trying to answer the distant starlight problem, and many suggestions have been made. Models that invoke light in transit, a variable speed of light, gravitational time dilation, creative ways of measuring time, and good old supernatural intervention have all been put forward as solutions to this problem. There have been literally hundreds of papers written, and even entire books, about each of these hypotheses. We've already handled a couple, so let's talk about the next big one. Gravitational time dilation. Russell Humphreys is most famous for utilizing Einstein's general theory of relativity to explain the distant starlight problem. Sometimes presuppositionalists will accuse atheists of, quote, sitting on God's lap to slap him in the face. If there was ever a time to say you're sitting on science's lap to slap it in the face, I would think it would be when someone uses Einstein's general theory of relativity to argue that the universe is 6,000 years old. According to general relativity, gravity affects time. Clocks on Earth tick more slowly than clocks orbiting high above the Earth. The closer the clock is to the source of gravitation, the slower time passes. This is gravitational time dilation. This phenomenon was originally predicted by Einstein, and it has since been experimentally confirmed. Time really does pass more slowly when you're near a massive object. Humphrey's Young Earth Cosmology supposes that the effects of gravitational time dilation are, or at least were at some point in the past, extremely significant. While a few days were passing on Earth, billions of years could have been available for starlight to travel to Earth, and this could, at least in principle, solve the distant starlight problem. However, there are empirical difficulties for this view. There should be other empirical clues that this had taken place. For example, that degree of time dilation should produce an extreme universal blue shift. But as you may be aware, we observe a universal red shift, the exact opposite of what this model would predict. To again quote Dr. Lyle, Galaxies in which clocks tick more rapidly than on Earth will naturally appear blue shifted, since the atomic processes producing the light are sped up relative to us. Since we don't see a universal blue shift, on the contrary, we see a universal redshift. The simplest explanation would seem to be that the galaxies are not substantially time dilated. End quote. It's pretty rich hearing a young Earth creationist talk about the simplest explanation, but anyway. Jason Lyle, who is a darling of the young Earth creationist community, has his own favorite answer to the distant starlight problem. Lyle calls his solution the Anisotropic Synchrony Convention, or ASC. This is widely considered to be the best answer on offer. A synchrony convention is a procedure for synchronizing clocks separated by distance. There are different synchrony conventions, sort of like how there are different measurement systems like the metric system and the English system. Anisotropic is to be distinguished from isotropic, which means something has identical properties in all directions. So anisotropic means something has different properties depending on the direction. Wood, for example is an anisotropic material. You can see lines going in one direction, and the wood is stronger with the grain than against the grain. Strength is a property of the wood, and this property depends on the direction. On the ASC model, the speed of light depends on which direction it's traveling. And yes, you heard that correctly. That's how he gets out of the distant starlight problem. Light can travel infinitely fast, at least in one direction, and it travels half the speed of light on the way back, which is why we always measure the speed of light as the constant c. But if light does travel at a constant speed, then his explanation doesn't work. If light can't travel faster than the speed of light, then his explanation doesn't work. 
He calls the speed of light the average speed of light, as opposed to the one-way speed of light, which he surmises may be different. Perhaps instead of traveling at C, starlight traveled infinitely fast to Earth, and C divided by two in other directions. We'd still get the same average speed of light at the end of the day. I'll remind you that this is the gold standard of creationist solutions to the distant starlight problem. We don't know that light actually takes the same time to go out as it does back. It could be the case that the light um, actually zips out and then takes all, maybe it zips out instantaneously and takes all two seconds to get back. Maybe the opposite. Maybe the light travels out very slowly and then zips back instantaneously. Maybe it's the same speed. Maybe it's very different. So how does he come to his extraordinary conclusion that light travels infinitely fast in one direction and a fraction of C going in other directions, averaging what we know as the speed of light? It has to do with the trickiness of measuring the one-way speed of light. We have to distinguish between the one-way speed of light and its two-way speed. We have no issue experimentally measuring the round trip or two-way speed of light. We can fire photons at a mirror and measure the time it took to travel from the light source and back. However, the one-way speed of light cannot be measured independently of a convention as to how to synchronize the clock at point A, the light source, and the clock at point B, the detector. A consequence of relativity is that one must choose a convention for synchronizing distant clocks. On Newtonian mechanics, we had absolute space and time. But space and time are dynamic in Einstein's relativity, not absolute. Consequently, Simultaneous events in one frame of reference are not necessarily simultaneous from another frame of reference. From one reference frame, two events could be simultaneous, while from another, those same two events could be sequential. Moreover, clocks in relative motion run at different rates, so we can't just synchronize the two clocks and move one across the room. The bottom line for our purposes is that measuring the speed of light just got way more complicated. Einstein chose a synchrony convention which has become the standard convention that made the one-way speed equal to the two-way speed. In other words, light travels at the same speed regardless of which direction it's traveling. The speed of light is the same in all directions. It doesn't matter which direction the light is going, it's going at a constant rate. Dr. Lyle adopts a different synchrony convention, wherein light travels at an infinite speed in one direction and half the speed of light on the return trip. And you're probably thinking, there must be some way to show that that's not right. But there isn't. You just have to choose a convention. Everything we've observed is compatible with the idea that light travels at a constant speed, and also with the idea that the one-way and two-way speeds of light are different. You can't demonstrate that he's wrong to choose this convention instead of the standard convention. And even Einstein would admit that. He did so in his book Relativity in Chapter 8. Jason Lyle claims that light travels at 0.5c away from the observer and at infinite speed toward the observer. That makes the average round-trip speed c, which is consistent with all observations. This can't be proven wrong, he says, and even Einstein agreed that the one-way speed of light is merely a convention. We agree to treat it as being c in both directions, but we could just as easily agree to use Lyle's convention. This is absolutely correct. The problem isn't that what Lyle is saying is false. It's that it would require rewriting lots of well-established physics in a way that makes it much more complicated, but for no reason. Oh, 
except that it allows for the Bible to be literally true. If you ignore the fact that the distant starlight problem isn't exactly the only thing that disproves it. And like I said, I'll link a video in the description that explains the difficulties of measuring the speed of light in such a way that would prove him wrong. To be clear, Dr. Lyle is not simply suggesting that the laws of nature were different in the past than they are today, as some creationists have suggested. What he's arguing is subtler than that, and it seems to all fit within conventional physics, even though it might not sound like it at first. So Dr. Lyle's idea is possible, but is there any reason to think it's correct? Is there any reason we should prefer his convention over the standard convention? Maybe it's the same speed, maybe it's very different. And people say, well, why would it be different in different directions? I don't know. Why would it be the same? <laughs> right? So the short answer is no. There is no reason to prefer the anisotropic synchrony convention to Einstein's convention. He just says, why would the speed of light be different? Well, why would it be the same? To me, it makes more sense to think that a massless particle would travel at the same speed, regardless of which direction it was going. I would want a reason to reject a constant speed of light in favor of a variable speed of light that always averages out to the same number. So I can't rule out the adoption of his convention over the standard, but that doesn't mean that his defense of young Earth cosmology is sound. His idea hasn't been confirmed. He's just cooked up a solution that doesn't contradict any data, which is a pretty low bar. In this way, it's no better off than the light in transit solution. Additionally, we don't just think the stars are ancient because they're far away. Seeing them is a problem, but it's also what we're seeing. Even if we accept that photons travel infinitely fast in one direction, and c divided by 2 in other directions, that doesn't solve the problem that there are stars that are older than 6,000 years. These stars still have the appearance of age. Sure, on this model we would be able to see their light, so in that sense his solution works. So does light in transit. But none of the stars we see should be all that far along in their life cycle. There shouldn't be any stars that are about to die, or have recently died, after a process that takes millions of years. We should only see young stars that have basically just begun their lives. That is, unless God created some stars partway through their lifespan, with the appearance of age. So this wouldn't be any different from claiming that starlight was created en route, or that isotopes were created half-decayed, or that the Earth was created with fossils in the ground, or that your brain was created with memories already stored. Remember, one of Dr. Lyle's problems with the light in transit model is that it would involve God creating evidence for events which never occurred, which seems to invite a radical skepticism towards our senses. But his idea doesn't avoid this problem, since we have evidence of the birth and death of innumerable stars, and we have evidence of stars that are quite a bit older than 6,000 years. In the absence of yet another ad hoc hypothesis, the ASC only solves half the problem. So, it's not clear that the anisotropic synchrony convention avoids the problems of the light and transit solution. And here's another problem that they both suffer from. They're both arguably unbiblical, if you take Genesis 1.14 literally. Lyle and other creationists think this verse indicates that one reason God made the lights in the sky was to mark the passage of time. God intended stars to mark the passage of time. That's why Dr. Lyle thinks he wouldn't create light already in transit since that would give us an inaccurate measure of time. But how can we say God gave us light to, among other things, mark the passage of time if light doesn't travel at a constant speed, but rather speeds up and slows down depending on unknown variables? That would be like giving you a clock whose minute hand doesn't move at a constant rate. 
such a device would be no clock at all. And to any young earther who disputes this, I'll give you a watch whose hands move at different speeds, depending on which direction you're walking, and you can let me know how good of a clock it is. So both the light and transit solution and the ASC solution are in conflict with the Bible, which is a problem if you're a young earther. Here's another potential complication I wanted to mention. Dr. Lyle's model is consistent with relativity. So is Dr. Humphrey's gravitational time dilation model. In fact, many creationists who present solutions to the distant starlight problem mention that their models are consistent with relativity. They advertise that as a benefit of their model. But I wouldn't be so sure. In episode 67, we go into a bit more detail on the A theory versus the B theory of time. The short version is, the A theory, or presentism, is the intuitive theory. Time passes at a constant rate here, there, and everywhere. There's no relativistic time dilation or simultaneity, no block universe. The B theory, or eternalism, is the conventional wisdom among physicists post-Einstein. All moments in time are equally real, and this view is implied by our best theories in physics, and many relativistic solutions to the distant starlight problem are consistent with it, which we're supposed to be impressed by. There are controversial Neo-Lorentzian interpretations of special relativity, but they are not well subscribed by those who don't have a religious motivation to accept them, and based on what I've read, I don't think Lyle or Humphreys subscribe to such a view anyway. The B-theory of time is usually resisted by apologists for two reasons, libertarian free will and the Kalam. The block universe implies determinism. The future is just as physically real as the present, so libertarian free will seems to go out the window with the B-theory. All moments in time, past, present, and future, are equally real. Secondly, the Kalam cosmological argument only works on the A-theory of time. This is occasionally denied by apologists, so I have some links backing that up. So if these creationists are willing to give up free will and the Kalam, to maybe solve a grand total of one problem for young earth creationism, they can be my guest. These solutions to the distant starlight problem don't prove the universe is young. They're just creative ways to dodge the distant starlight problem. They don't undermine any of the dozens and dozens of other independent lines of evidence that soundly disconfirm a young earth and a young universe. So it's a steep price to avoid one problem. And that's if these solutions actually work. We've been in the weeds of young earth creationism today, but we should take a break from that and think about what it is young earthers are trying to do here. They're trying to make the data fit their conclusion, which they're starting from. No one would be led to a young earth creationist cosmology who is just trying to follow the evidence where it seems to lead. You have to want the universe to be that young. And then you have a lot of work to do. But is simply fitting together the data in your theory enough? If a theory fits the data, does that make it the simplest or most parsimonious theory? Of course not. If a theory fits the data, does that mean the theory is confirmed? Absolutely not. If a theory fits the data, however implausibly, does that mean it's rational to accept that theory? 
If you want your theory to be rational, making it fit the data is not enough. Here's Stephen Law explaining in detail why this massive Young Earth creationist project of making their theories fit the data in all kinds of creative ways, like the ones you've heard about today, actually isn't sufficient to make their theories rational, and what a rational theory would be. I think that one of the things that young earth creationists do, which allows them to convince themselves that what they believe is is scientifically credible, is that they convince themselves of a theory about what it is for a theory to be confirmed that's not quite right, <laughs> but looks plausible, uh, has a certain veneer to it, plausible veneer to it. Surely, you might say, science is all about developing your theory in such a way that it fits the available evidence. What else are scientists doing if they're not doing that? And so if you can make your theory fit the evidence, if you can make your theory consistent with the available evidence, then surely it is just as well confirmed as any other theory that fits the evidence, that is consistent with the evidence. Um, and that's what young earth creationists and their multi-million dollar funded institutes do. They show how you can make it all fit. You can make it all consistent. You can cook up endless stories to account for all of these various anomalies. But actually, the fit theory of confirmation is wrong. And that's really the first thing that I want to point out. The young earth creationist approach to evidence turns on a misunderstanding of what confirmation is. Yes, they try to make their theory consistent with the evidence, but, and here's the first point really, any theory, no matter how nuts, can be made to fit the evidence. Right? Doesn't matter how ludicrous your theory is, one way or another, you can make it consistent with the available evidence. Given enough ingenuity and determination, you can just keep going, keep explaining away all the, the anomalies. I just, um, to begin with, just flagging up this seductive myth that good science is about using one's ingenuity to construct theories that fit the evidence. On that view of science, Young Earth creationism does look like good science. It can be made to look like good science. But any theory, no matter how absurd, can be made to fit the evidence. That does not mean it's reasonable. It does not mean it's confirmed. In fact, it may be absurd and straightforwardly, empirically falsified. Um, to make a theory fit the evidence is not to show that it has been confirmed. Now, earlier on, you heard about a philosopher of science called um, Karl Popper. I'm certainly not here endorsing everything that Popper says. I'm not signing up to falsificationism for a start. But Popper has got some good insights, it seems to me. He certainly stresses the importance of testability as far as theories are concerned. If whatever happens, your theory would be consistent with the available evidence, then your theory is unfalsifiable. And Popper thought that was a very serious failing in any theory that claimed to be scientific. In fact, he thought that it was sufficient to render the theory unscientific. Now, that claim is probably too strong, but I think that it's fair to say that a lack of falsifiability certainly counts against a theory. If you have two theories and one is falsifiable and the other one is not, you should probably be leaning towards the more falsifiable theory. 
other things being equal. So, uh, if we take the theory of evolution and common descent, unlike young earth creationism, it is strongly confirmed. Why? Well, one reason is it makes numerous predictions that are one, clear and precise, two, surprising, and three, true. And here's just one example. Haldane was once asked, what would constitute evidence against evolution? And he said, fossil rabbits in the Precambrian. That would do it. <laughs> uh, he says, even one incontrovertible, incontrovertible find of any pre-Devonian mammal, bird, or flower would shatter the theory of common descent, certainly as we have it now. These things are just not supposed to be around that early. So here's a more precise way of articulating uh, the prediction. We should never find mammalian or avian bird fossils in or before the Devonian deposits before reptiles had diverged from the amphibian tetrapod line. This excludes Precambrian, Cambrian, Ordovician and Silurian deposits encompassing 92% of the Earth's geological history and 65% of the biological history of multicellular organisms. That's a very clear, precise and surprising prediction. And of course, it turns out that Every day, thousands of fossils are dug up and never do you find a bird or a mammal in any of that, uh, in any of those sedimentary deposits, never. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of fossils constantly being dug up and it just never, ever happens. Boy, that is surprising if this particular theory is not true. So it's a clear and precise prediction, a surprising prediction, a true prediction, strongly confirms the theory of evolution. What do young earth creationists predict when they're digging around in the ground? What do they expect us to find? The fact is, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what they dig up, it's all gonna be fine for young earth creationism. You know, what wouldn't fit so far as young earth creationism is concerned, so far as what you dig out of the ground is concerned. And the young earth creationists see this as the great strength of their theory. The fact that it doesn't really matter what the hell you dig up, it's always going to be fine for young earth creationism. So here's a quotation. If human and dinosaur bones are ever found in the same layers, it would be a fascinating find. Those who hold a biblical view of history wouldn't be surprised. Well, of course not, because the dinosaurs and the humans were around at the same time. So Bob's your uncle, no particular, no, no anomaly there. The evolutionists, on the other hand, would have a real challenge. In the old earth view, man isn't supposed to be the same age as the dinosaurs. As biblical creationists, we don't require that human and dinosaur fossils be found in the same layers, whether they are found or not does not affect the biblical view of history. Now here is a young earth creationist trumpeting as the great virtue of young earth creationism, the fact that it cannot come into conflict with the evidence. And yet that is its great weakness. That is precisely why it cannot be strongly confirmed. So they see as the great strength of their theory what is in truth its greatest weakness. And that's all I have for you today. I have new patrons to thank, Rebecca Kay and Ben Bassett. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, Ben. And of course, I'd like to thank my patron Hall of Fame. If you still have an income, make sure your podcasters do too. I like that name change, Jesta. Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Pre Nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. 
And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter, where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to sit on Science's lap to slap it in the face, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Additional music that you've been hearing for the past few months was written and performed by Achika Nito and was also used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.